And we're off. That's it. Be the beginning, cold open. Do you like that? Do you like that I just start talking? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Hello and welcome to the Rodeo Labs podcast. We've got a fun episode today because I'm joined once again after his short hiatus by Steve the intern. Steve, yes. how are we doing today? Doing well. Um, just running a complicated machine. A complicated machine, but we're making it simple today because I'm in person. There's yes. no machines between us. It's possible that Logan will become a resident of Denver. I'm not. I'm not going to count my chickens yet. But... I'm counting my chickens. Okay. Yeah, because right. I'm planning on signing like, a, like, or filling out a, a number of apartment application forms today. It's crazy, you know, adult stuff. Like, because yeah. we joke about you being the intern, but I'm actually an intern here. <laughs> in a way, it could be said. In a way, I still. I hope I never give that title up because it. Some days it feels really fitting. Your head intern, I'm like, yeah, right. Junior intern, <laughs> intern in chief. But, I do want to put that in my uh, title and my email, but I feel like when I actually talk to a bank or something, they won't talk to me if it actually says intern. Yeah, so. you kind of need that sometimes. Right. Yeah, um, you need to be the boss sometimes. But we're here in my domain now, the yep. podcast. Yeah, I am the, the the captain of this ship, and you are the co-host. That's true. Um, sometimes I'm a special guest. Sometimes noticed, you're a special guest. I, that title makes me cringe. You're um, simultaneously special guest, co-host, and like, I guess, producer, editor in chief. I don't know. We don't have a hierarchy. It's flu. It's flow. It's it's, uh, right. it's fluid. But um, you have let me set off on this race director roundup series on my own, and I'm bringing you in now because one, you're a part of one of these next two conversations. But two, I wanted to check in with you and sort of get your opinion about how you felt the conversations have gone and how this has changed your opinion. Cause I've been like lost in the sauce as the kids say. Yeah. Well, I enjoyed listening to episode two of this series. Uh, I listened to that one pretty cold. You know, you did all those interviews. I had nothing to do with any of them. I hadn't heard any of them. Uh, so that interview I got to f listen with totally fresh ears. And I think what struck me the most about it was how little I knew or nothing I knew about most race director stories. And I think I am a cynical person. Sometimes the cynical side of me would have said most of these races, most races just appear out of some sort of attempt to cash in on, you know, the growth of gravel in, you know, then I listened to all of these and the diversity and everybody's stories of how they're, events came into existence kind of gave me fresh optimism that things are in a better place than I thought. Uh, and different races are doing things for totally different reasons. You know, you have these OGs that have been around for a very long time uh, and they did it maybe as an experiment. Then you, you had people who, who were coming in to do, you know, with a fundraising mission, uh, they, you know, they wanted the event to exist. They wanted to bring people to an area and then they wanted to do something like scholarships. Um, or some people saw, you know, they wanted to go on a certain type of ride and it didn't exist. So they created it. Uh, so hearing, hearing from all of those directors, um, just was really educational and it made me less cynical about why do these event, uh, events exist and should they exist? I think they all should. Um, and it's up to people, you know, who are registering to decide what they connect with. But the fact that they exist is a net good thing. Yeah. As I've been going through this, part of me has asked the question, what is the value of this to someone who might not be racing a whole lot? As someone who kind of is pretty selective about what 
you can do in terms of events. How do you feel like this conversation or these conversations I've been having could be important for those who maybe are interested in gravel riding, but maybe not sure about racing? Well, I don't, I don't think all of these events are races. I think many are timed and you can race them and people are interested to know who won. So if you want to consume it through that lens, you can, but many of these races have experience rides and categories that have nothing to do with how fast you go. You still get the same party, the same hangout, the same meal afterwards. And they're just events. They're gatherings. That would be the best maybe word for me. And look, if you're that rider who wants to ride alone all day long and, you know, get to know yourself better and kind of go deep and existential, that's your reason to ride. That's great. But for a lot of people, riding is community and these events are community gatherings. Um, so gravel racing really only captures a small percentage of people who ride the style of bike. Uh, most of the people that ride our bikes probably maybe never do a race, but they're out there discovering themselves and building relationships. And that's, that's what I like the most about these events. So are they relevant? Yeah, they're especially relevant if you enjoy community if you enjoy maybe saying, I've got friends all over the country and we want to pick a single calendar date and all converge on at the same time and place and do something together. So they're a good rallying point for people who don't get to see each other very often. So I think they're super can change minds. Well, without further ado, let's listen in on those conversations. And then Stephen and I will be back to talk a little bit about our takeaways and our last step on this, this little journey. Joining me today is Michael Marks, the founder and race director of the Belgian Waffle Ride series. He started the race in Southern California with the first edition in 2012, and he is now joining me from his, what looks like back porch in Southern California. I see palm trees. I see them waving in the wind. Um, where are you coming from today? Yeah, we live in a little beach town called Lucadia. Um so the beach is just off to my right and the wind's coming from the south and uh, it's going to rain in a bit, but I'm going to sneak out for a ride after we're done chatting. I am really glad you're chatting with me today because I've been talking with a lot of different race directors and your race is pretty unique in a lot of different ways. One of those was the origin. So it started out in 2012, um, as I mentioned, as a spring classic essentially in the United States. What went into that conception back in 2012? Yeah, so I was hired to turn around a company called Spy Optic, which happened to be publicly traded at the time. And what I wanted to do is create uh, an experiential marketing campaign that would get people talking about us, particularly in the cycling and sports world, because traditionally we were like surf, skate, snow, motocross, you know, action sports, uh, but there was so much potential for cycling. So um, at the time I was racing cross, I had a UCI pro card to race cyclocross. I have a Belgian heritage. 
I love long races. So I thought I'm going to mix peanut butter and chocolate or in, in this instance, cyclocross and a spring classic and create a seven hour spring classic in Southern California. And thus the BWR was born. What was the reaction to that first race? How many people finished? What did they ride? What was that initial takeaway from your first time trying to do this unorthodox project? Yeah, the, the funny thing is it was invite only. So like a who's who of the cycling community in Southern California, 136 invites, 118 finished. Um, everyone rode road bikes, except for a few clever people use their cyclocross bike. Most everyone had 23s. A couple people had 25s. And the course went over some, you know, suspect terrain, but nothing like it goes over now. But certainly enough to create punctures. And a lot of people are like, we can't take a road bike on this stretch. Uh, but sure enough, we did. What we learned in those early years before gravel bikes were invented, that it's pretty easy to destroy wheels and bikes taking them in the type of terrain that we did. But that was sort of the, the fun of it is like, who could draw the best line to avoid catastrophe and finish the damn thing? It was really sort of a project of finesse, it sounds like. Yeah, you, you had to know your bike and you had to know the lines to take through some of those rock gardens. Um, and you had to put a lot of faith in, in you know, your tires <laughs> which they hadn't invented tubeless yet. Some of us actually use tubulars, but then those things flat too. Yeah. Well, as you reflect back on that initial race more than a decade later, what were some of the decisions you felt had the biggest impact on where you guys went in the next 10, 11, 12 years? I, I would think that there was a punctuating moment like maybe three or four years into it, where somebody said to me, hey man, I think it's too hard. I think people don't want to race 140 miles over unroads un of you know, various technical challenges. You should make it shorter and easier for people um, and then more people will come. And then I took that advice and started making the course longer and more challenging and sort of went the opposite direction. And I think that was probably the best decision we ever made. Yeah. It was sort of like you had a fork in the road and you chose the one that was not so much encouraged based upon the paradigms of the time, but what you felt was the original call to do the event. Yeah. Like, is it really special to ride a hundred miles on suspect terrain? Most everyone kind of does that on the weekend, you know, if they're training um, it's something much more special if it's 150 or 140 miles of really challenging terrain with really good racers. Um, and there's a bit of luck, you know, do you flat, do you get a mechanical, but there, there's something monumental about finishing that day. Some, some people, it takes 15 hours or more. That's more special than doing a four or five hour, hundred mile race that to me just isn't special. And we wanted it to be special and unique. And still the fun thing is to this day, 
you know, you mentioned sort of all the Johnny come latelys that say, hey, we should put on a gravel race too. Look at look at all these other guys that are doing it. Um, they put on a gravel race that stays on gravel for whatever, 100 miles or less. Um, and there's nothing dynamic about it. Whereas we intentionally create a very dynamic course that's a cocktail of mixed surfaces. Sometimes it's sand, sometimes it's rock gardens, water crossings, um, gravel roads occasionally, asphalt occasionally, but you can never get comfortable in any one of those settings because inevitably you're gonna make a turn into a challenging sector. You might have to dismount. Um, and so it forever keeps you on your toes. And it's actually way more hard to ride in that kind of terrain than it is even on a gravel road. Mm -hmm. This kind of segues great into my next questions. Or this kind of seg segues well into my next question, I should say. In what ways did you look for inspiration in off-road events around you? Um, the mid-2010s were sort of that first boom of it. And in what ways were you sort of trying to ignore that conventional wisdom? You know, I really, there wasn't anything going on that I paid attention to other than I kept seeing road race, road races disappear from Southern California. And we all love to do road races, but they're just few and far between. Um, there weren't any gravel things to com compare to. Um, so it, for us, it was just our own imagination and, you know, conjuring up what's possible, like what kind of a crazy race can we make that's completely unique to anything else? And if that's your pursuit, then it's sort of a ne never ending pursuit, which makes it fun, both for race directors like myself and my partners um, and people that are doing them. Like, for instance, you may know that we never reveal the course until the week before. Mm -hmm. So on Monday, I will reveal the course to the eight or nine hundred or a thousand riders that are doing the inaugural Arizona race. Um, that keeps people on their toes. No one has an advantage. No one has any idea where we're going to take them. Uh, and there's a, a wonderful surprise element to that that makes the, the playing field a bit more even for everybody. Everyone's surprised and delighted by it. And that's something we want to continue to do every year. Uh, it's important for us to challenge ourselves. And I have a great team and partners that are constantly challenging me and each other to do that which is unique. Mm -hmm. You talked a little bit about the pressure that you got from feedback and what people might have said or suggested you do. Um, at what point did you feel like there was a critical mass of interest where you really were able to take it whatever direction you wanted as sort of a table setter, right? Instead of being something that was trying to break in, you sort of became a standard. What was the addition where you felt like that flex point happened? Um, because I'm a branding and marketing person really at heart, I created it as a brand, not necessarily as a race, but the brand and the race, you know, it's, it's been the same moniker, the same logo, the same iconography, the same tone of voice and personality from the get-go. And the vision of it was to always be the ultimate one-day spring classic in the U.S. Um, 
so that was always the, the guardrails were always taking us in that direction. So every decision had to be made. How do we continue to build this thing to compel people's or capture their imagination, challenge ourselves every year to ultimately become that ultimate spring day classic in the US. That those are the, the principles that have guided us and they continue to guide us. It just happens that now we've morphed into having seven events this year, maybe more. Um, each one's very different. So we each we use each venue to offer up sort of a different cocktail with somewhat similar ingredients, but one place might be a desert, so it's a different kind of sand and a different kind of terrain or altitude. And another like North Carolina is lush and beautiful and wet. And the gravel there is different than you have in Utah. And so each one has its own unique offering to the world and collectively they're incredibly unique um, because we make sure that there's nothing like each one of these venues. In fact, every venue that we choose has to have a combination of three things. One is the type of terrain and topography that avails to us that, that terrain cocktail. Two, is it a place that people want to go? Um, so you can bring the family and it's a, a cool outing. And three is, does that place have a cycling community that we can be in support of and enrich through our experience? So it's those three things that, that, that just decide where we're going to go. So you can imagine like Boulder, Colorado, there's plenty of places in Colorado we could go because um, we've you know been working on the Colorado venue for a while now. But that's how we look at things. And that's basically what drives us unique settings that people want to go to. What, what has that meant to the experience for someone going to a BWR? Do you think that has given the races a particular takeaway that people might not have from other experiences? Yeah, I mean, if you compare it to some of the races where they say, here's a 100-mile course or here's a 200-mile course, there are no markings, there are no aid stations. Please pay us the money and we'll let you do it. And at the end, we'll give you a donut or something. Um, we make our races so hard and challenging that we have to have on-course support. Uh, one year, I remember before the 50-mile mark, we had gone through 50 wheels, 55 wheels actually, that, that our support crew had um, had to give out to people in the race. Um, San Diego has 10 feed zones for essentially a 135 mile race. Um, so we try and provide tons of support to get people through a really hard event um, as opposed to, a, hey, here's a semi hard event and you don't get anything for it. So I think those are things that sort of set us apart. On-course support, roving mechanics on e-bikes, on the trails, aid stations everywhere. Mm -hmm. One standard comment in all of the conversations I've had with race directors is setting their, like planning their flag in either the supported or non-supported side of the equation. You are obviously on the supported side and might be the biggest example of a very supportive race environment. Was that something you intended to be so firm or was it something that you, you sort of 
for lack of a better word and excuse my pun, waffled on. <laughs> um, I think it sort of blossomed as the courses got more and more challenging. But essential elements for us were you have to come and get waffles. And now we're really focused on making sure they're really good, hot, and most often authentic Belgian waffles, whether it's the Liège version or something close to that. Um, you get waffles before the race, you get coffee, and then you get waffles and or lunch after the race. You also get beer. You're given beer to enjoy after the race. And then everyone who finishes gets a finisher trophy beer from whoever our um, brewery sponsor is. Most notably, it's been the Lost Abbey for 12 years here in San Diego. And they've also helped us with other venues. And when they're unable to do it, they introduce us to, say, Tommy from Lost Abbey has introduced us to Sierra Nevada, who we've had a great relationship with. So those things are important. Waffles, really hard bike race, tons of support, both on-course mechanics and food and beverage, and then waffles and food and beer afterwards. That's the proper experience. Mm -hmm. You mentioned additionally the idea that it's a brand and not a particular race. This is kind of another flex point where race directors I've spoken with have been on sort of two different sides. Either you create one event and you focus on that one and that community, or you look to create a brand and syndicate those experiences or have those affiliate races. What was the decision-making process going into your choice to create a series and to create a brand that was beyond that addition, that first or original concept? Yeah. Um, my original concept was I'm going to do the Belgian waffle ride here, San Diego. I'm going to do the Italian sausage ride in a German town in Texas. I'm going to do the Spanish paella ride in Monterey, um, the Dutch oven ride <laughs> in uh, hot terrain. Um, and there, the concept was all these unique events. But by the time I started considering them, uh, oh, I should have mentioned uh, our team put on Sagan's, Peter Sagan's Grand Fondo here in the US too. So Monuments of Cycling, the parent company, was putting on multiple events even working on a music cycling and food expo that COVID got in the way of. But ultimately the BWR brand after three or four years was so strong that we just figured why not sort of follow more of an Ironman approach? Cause I had worked for the Ironman in a past life and, and, and carry that strong brand into other areas and not syndicate it to use your word. Um, but literally become a, member of that community, work with community members there and build a relationship in support of charities, uh, bike shops, breweries, and, and take that brand to that particular venue and, and live up to the BWR um, ethos in each one of those locations. So that's what we continue to do today. What of those communities surprised you the most? Um, well, like Cedar City in Utah really wanted to bring people to their city 
because people don't really know it as like, hey, this it's a great venue to go to when it's not snowing. When it's snowing, there's there's tons of awesome places, including Brian Head right there. But it's a summer, t- oh, it's a summer, uh, it's an awesome summer place to vacation, particularly if you're a cyclist. So they said, hey, look, we want to bring people here. Can you do that for us and put on one of your cool events? And they are just so amazing to work with that that's, that's one of our favorite places to go because they welcome us with open arms. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say, too, like we work with Matthew Boucher uh, in North Carolina there, and he's our, our boots on the ground in North Carolina, and he's great. And they really embrace us. And we, we put on the event at this place called Canuga Resort. And they have like 500 rooms that we sell out immediately. And that place just feels like this fun community. And it's really neat to see how much that, that group of people put into the event. But really, I can't. each of venue has that sort of magical community connection. I would say the Kansas event has by far the greatest gravel course or unrobed course uh, on the planet that I'm aware of. It is so dynamic. There's no mountains, but there's endless 1K climbs. And it's tons of mostly gravel, but there's single track and cyclocross and and mountain biking and every kind of terrain possible. Um, that that one just feels like the most incredible course to actually go and race on. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you bring up Matthew because he's an old coach of mine and I was talking to him frequently when he was building the course. And in fact, he was like, told me off the record, like, I can't tell you what the course is, but I'm worried it's too hard. So it seemed like he got the spirit of the event. Um, he, Matthew, when I was um, CEO at Spy, um, I signed, I love Matthew and we both have a running background and we connected. So I signed him to the team when he was um, with Radio Shack. And so we became buddies that way. So he was a super easy guy to call up and say, hey, dude, you want to you want to do this crazy thing there? And and will you will you be my proxy? And he's right. He's always worried that it's too hard. And we want to be on, you know, riding that one that that level of, you know, one level below obnoxious. Yeah. <laughs> or too hard. Yeah. It- What's interesting about that event too is you were going into a space that did not have an established gravel race in the area. There was some small races, but they were not doing anything that would be at the scale that BWR was. Um, and I felt like it was really beneficial. Where I think th- I have had more questions about the expansion was in races that may have been entering the calendar at different points that have maybe challenged other established races or entering communities that might be in close proximity to other events. Um, What has the political discussions been like lowercase P um, with other races or other communities that might feel like you are encroaching on what their calendar space might be or what their geographical space might be? Yeah, that's a good question. So the, the bulk of the race directors that, we respect that have been sort of part of the old guard. We all confer on dates. None of us wants to sit on top of each other. 
Um, we work with Amanda Nauman, who has done commentating and won our races, and she's just an angel. She has a race uh, in Mammoth, California, and it happened that the, the date that Cedar City had given us was literally her weekend, and we didn't know it. And she, she reached out and said, dude, your, your race is like one day after ours. So I went back to the city and we moved our event so that we we could accommodate each other. So literally we could have Amanda either race or do our commentating and we could go and do her race. Um, but we always confer. Um, and hopefully now people know not to try and go up against us in our dates. And so there's a, a general simpatico that exists where the, the major players all respect one another. For instance, you brought up a good point. In Cedar City, um, we're pretty close to uh, Crusher and the Tusher. And um, I used to sponsor Burke's Crusher, Crusher and the Tusher when I was at Spy 2. So when we went there, I said, dude, you know, is it okay if we come in and do it this many months after your event? And can we work with you on the course? And he was really accommodating and has come and raced with us. And so there's a simpatico there that exists that we're not competing with each other and we're supporting each other. and We're doing each other's races and promoting each other's races. And that's the way it should be. I think what you get is the Johnny come lately's that come in and they're a bit more antagonistic um, and less cooperative. They just see an opportunity and they go for it. Um, but I think those, the Johnny come lately is will eventually be weeded out by that behavior. Mm -hmm. There's been some concern from different people I've talked to who promote races where, where they're seeing and they're having conversations with folks who are doing less races and that they are being more intentional with their spending. And the worry is that there might be limits to the growth and the limits to the potential for expanding field sizes and expanding number of races in the community as an organization that is really priding itself on the growth and emphasizing that expansion. How do you interact with those sentiments and those feelings? Yeah. I mean, for us, particularly, it's a fine line between clever and stupid um, adding more and more events because not only do we cannibalize other events, but we, we cannibalize ours, right? So um, people that now have chosen to do the Arizona event may not come back six weeks later and do the California event. Um, our expansion really is uh, transcends North America. Although we have one event in Canada, we're going to add two more in the near future. We have one event in Mexico that ends the quadruple crown of gravel series in November, we will add another event in Latin America. We will add a, another event, at least one in South America. And simultaneously, we'll be adding events to Europe um, at locations and venues that um, can support our, our constituency or what would be our constituency in that region or location. So it really is a balance of the geographic distribution and the geographic confines of growth, not just looking at it from an American perspective. Yeah. Like I mentioned Colorado, I think that that's still 
a really viable place for what we offer and you know working with the right people to make that happen there's probably a couple other states you know we'll go back to michigan um probably have to do that next year um but overall i think our growth is going to come is going to transcend the united states and be in all those other locations Looking at it from the outside and looking at it from someone who's been a road racer and who every year watches the spring classics, I've always felt that BWR seems to have more in common with an organization like Flanders Classics than an organization like Lifetime, where you're focusing on cycling specific events, one day events, instead of looking at it purely from a participatory number standpoint. When you look at an organization when you look at an organization like Flanders Classic that has really done transformative work in the specter of professional road cycling, what do you think you can take away from that? And what do you think you can't? Um, That is such a good example. And we'll use that. We'll juxtapose them with, say, Lifetime. Um, That organization is run by authentic cyclists. And, and, and or former pro racers. And everything about it is authentic and real. And we feel like we're like them. Like my partners, Randall Coxworth is our operations guy, a finance guy. And my other partner is Phil Tinsman, who does all the course and registration stuff. And the three of us have our own lanes. Randall's a former national champion and wins so many races every year. I just, I, it's like boring to him. Sometimes he'll win two on the same weekend. And then Phil is the same way. Phil just recently won uh, the U S national road championships for masters. And those guys race Ram. They have the course record for Ram. They, they are authentic bike racers who happen to also be really good at other things. And I like to think of myself in a similar vein and the three of us, get along as brothers and we're like that organization and we love what we do and we're cyclists. So if we're not putting on a race that weekend, then we're probably out racing um, one or doing a long training ride so that we can race. Um, whereas lifetime is a, a business and it's a legitimate business, but their business is gyms. And then this small business they have is events and their formula is, like we, we talked about Burke at Crusher, buy an event like that, buy him out, and then take over that event and run that event. But what happens is when you do that, you, you, you lose the lifeblood and the authenticity of that brand. So you can look outside cycling, examples of um, the real world. I live next door to a friend named Richard Wolcott who started Volcom uh, when we when we lived next to each other. And he always maintained this extremely authentic thumbprint on that brand until they sold to the carrying group, which is Gucci. And then they sort of lost their way because the lifeblood and that control has left. And what we want is to always be the authentic purveyors of these experiences, continue to challenge ourselves but ultimately be like that authentic organization in Flanders that's putting on the most important bike races 
in the world. We would aspire to be like that, not to be a business that ends up, you have a cookie cutter business. Um, they tend to lose their flavor and certainly their authenticity. So that juxtaposition is an important one to us. It's in, it's really interesting you bring up that aspect of business. And I think in another way of saying it could be like the influence of venture capitalism in the outdoor space and in the race space, or just the the commodification of these experiences. And this is something we've been dealing with on this podcast outside of racing. We just did a an episode on the way in which we adventure and particularly mapping and presenting experiences and presenting routes. So we talk to people who are affiliated with a guide that does adventure booklets, like old school style adventure guides. Oh, and we yeah. also talk to ride with GPS. And in that conversation with the folks at ride with GPS, they told us that they never took venture capitalist money or outside money or any sponsorship. It's a hundred percent user generated. Um, and then you look at an organization like outside magazine or outside incorporated that has acquired things and recently started to have to cut some of those programs. And you see this divide that exists in the outdoor space. Is that a similar dynamic when you're looking at your race versus an or the organization of lifetime and those lifetime races? It's, it's a huge juxtaposition there. Um, and you could use Rodeo Labs as an example. Imagine, because it's such an authentic brand that's run by a small group of avid people that all believe the same thing. And imagine you get to a certain level where you take on money, then that money, whether it's private equity or new ownership, puts pressure to make money and to get their money back. And when that happens, that, that injects fear into the organization. And when fear is injected into a room, creativity flees the room. So um, there's a certain dynamic there. You can look at, you used um, Ride With GPS, who I work with too, um, but juxtapose them to, if you may recall, Map My Ride, who literally, you know, took the money and then that, that platform was essentially ruined. You know, it's useless now. Um, that happens when small, authentic brands are purchased because they're small and authentic and cool. Um, and they get put into this larger organization that's run by shareholders or people that don't even ride a bike. Um, that magic, that authenticity, the thing that made the brand what it is, leaves. And so many of those brands just get shuttered because of that. Um, and that's just not going to happen with us. Mm -hmm. We, we're talking about business and about comparing these corporate entities, but I think there is some feelings within the gravel environment that it is a little bit of a contest between big and small and whatever that means. And I think in a number of the conversations I had with different race directors, there was this idea that they were a part of the small or whatever that means, like grassroots or whatever euphemism you want to use for that. And BWR and Unbound, specifically with SBT also involved in that, that distinction, were something separate. Do you feel like that's the case? 
Or do you feel like that's just sort of the differences of the scale of what you're doing? But there are these distinctions that you've talked about. I think there's an allure to both types. Um, our friends put on um, an event called the Rock Cobbler that happened last week or the week before out here in California. That is an example of a smaller one, but they've curated it so well. It's it's basically the craziest gravel race there is. It's certainly the most dangerous race I've ever done. Um, but it just feels so cool at the size that it is. Um, and we support them and they support us. In fact, Sam, who's the race director there, is the guy that makes all of our waffles and has been for you know over a decade now. Um, there's something magical about those smaller events and we go and do them. And But there's also something mystical about towing the start line with two or 3,000 other riders and being a part of a spectacle like that and racing as best you can against such a huge field. There's, there's, there's wonderful aspects to both. Speaking of both and speaking of trying to elevate all different types of races in all different parts of the country. What would you say to someone who's starting gravel about building a race program? What would you recommend they look for? And how would you feel your events can fit into that schematic for someone who is entering the sport and entering the discipline? Um, well, f fortunately for them, we created, uh, we have three races now. So there's the waffle and then there's the wafer, which is about half the waffle. And then we created the WANA, which is half the wafer. And the WANA is the on-ramp to gravel. So typically they have, they're less technical. There's not too much gravel on that course. And it's something that most everyone can do as their first race and get a taste of the waffle, so to speak. And then they can matriculate upwards and take on the wafer and ultimately the waffle. That, that's what we did was we created that as an on-ramp. And a lot of times we'll, we'll do buy one, get one. So let's say if we're, we've encouraged female riders. So, hey, buy one and we'll give one of your friends uh, the chance to come and ride for free so that you have a, a buddy system in place. Uh, we've also done that with young riders. We've also given larger prize purses to women. We've also given prize purses to when I say prize purses, like money, cash prize purses to youth riders and even masters riders. So we try and mix up that support. But in terms of newbies, we've created that on-ramp. And, and your question was, how do, how do you create a program for them to do these things? So first start with a 40 mile one, see how you like it, what you learned, and then, then gravitate to a 60 or 70 or 80 mile race um, that may have more challenging terrain, but definitely stay away from the more like our, our waffle race and the wafer for that matter can be technically way too challenging for a lot of people. If you compare it to just the normal gravel races that are on the calendar, um, our races are just harder. Mm -hmm. My last question is, looking at the state of gravel and on-road cycling and off-road cycling or whatever you want, you want to call it. Yeah. Um, we've talked a little bit about your hopes and 
what you are hoping to do with the international aspect of gravel cycling and how you're hoping to grow. But I think it is important to talk about what you might see as some of the challenges and maybe even some of your fears about the direction the sport might be going. What are you seeing that is what you anticipate to be a challenge? Um, well, I see opportunity uh, in Europe where there's a rising tide for these types of events. I mean, even just the gravel worlds in Italy last year, that has um, perked up a lot of attention for gravel racing in Europe where there aren't a lot of races. So the rising tide, tons of potential there. It's different here in the U.S. because, as you noted, every weekend there's a new gravel race that's being added by someone who's opportunistic about it. And so that flooded, those flooded calendars really make it challenging for all the other events that have been doing it now for, like us, for 12 years or more. Um, so what, what the traditional races have to do is keep getting better at supporting and inspiring communities and bringing in new communities and bringing in diversity and doing things with their large platform to inspire people to get on a bike and train and transform their lives through the prism of those two wheels with ultimately the event being the test and or testimony of that transition for that person. Um, the challenges are then here's all these opportunistic Johnny come lately's that are really just hopping on the gravel or unroad bandwagon um, without the authenticity or the real desire to contribute to the community. Um, and like I said earlier, I think they will eventually go away, but they will be a problem overall in the U.S. where gravel has been something for quite some time. After I talked to Michael, I had a much better understanding of his race and an appreciation for the context that went into it. I also felt that maybe in my perceptions of BWR, I looked at the cohesive branding and the built-out website as something that signified a little bit more of a corporation behind it. But after talking with Michael, that's just who he is and that's just the intention he wanted to put behind his event. One of the races that seems to operate at a similar level, in my mind, has always been SBT. Now, SBT is a little bit different with a different origin story, so I wanted to capture that race, but I needed a little help. And Steve, the intern, Stephen Fitzgerald, has ridden SBT before and knows Amy Charity, who is the race director. So I thought he would be the perfect person to come on the conversation. As you heard from the beginning of the podcast, he has been following along, and this was his role in the reporting. So with no further ado, here it is, the conversation with Stephen, myself, and Amy Charity, the race director of... SBT Gravel. So let's take a, a couple of steps back. Um, who were you when you were the co-founder of SBT and what was that initial race like? Yeah, so it was in 2018 that we came up with the idea of SBT Gravel. And 
I was still, I, I had a background in professional bike racing on the road and was kind of easing out of that and had done a, a gravel event and had um, a couple of friends who lived in Steamboat and we talked about putting together a gravel event. And this was really before they had taken off to the level that we know them now. And at that time, there was no large event in the Rocky Mountains. And we thought, this is probably a hole that we could fill with with gravel racing. And why don't we put on something that is on a really large scale? So the initial talk was, should this be something that appeals to a very local audience or bigger than that? Should we go national or even bigger than that? And we all agreed that a international bike race was something that we we thought Steamboat could handle and Steamboat would welcome and that there was a need for it and that we were kind of the right people to do that. Um, I, uh, you know, I had a background prior to bike racing in uh, business for, for a long time and didn't come from the event side of the world at all. Um, and so that was, that was definitely a learning curve, but I think having the, the background of bike racing relationships and cycling uh, both among brands and racers, and then having a bit of a um, marketing and business background was helpful in in launching um, what eventually became SBT Gravel. I think that's super interesting question to ask yourself at the beginning of an event. You know, how big? Who? What? How do we see ourselves? How big do we want to be, and who do we want to appeal to? Because I I have never thought about doing something that way. I, I don't organize events, but I think a lot of people who organize events just say, here's a course, whoever wants to come, come, let's do it. And then, you know, maybe it grows slowly over time, but I, I don't personally remember SBT ever being small. It just went like straight from like the big, bang. it was the big bang of like, bam, it's big and it's huge. And it, it was, it was, I, had, I truly just couldn't even believe in a good way. Like, how did it go from zero to huge instantly? But now hearing that you planned that is really fascinating. Yeah, it, it was intentional. In fact, that was one of our, the first night we went out to dinner to kind of discuss like, what is this going to look like? It was, it was really deliberate. And it was like, no, we don't want this to just appeal to this local audience. We think we can create something really big. And I think part of the driving factor of that is, Steamboat is used to accommodating tens of thousands of people in the winter. So we have the resources, we have the infrastructure. It can, it can handle a lot, even more than we bring to Steamboat in the summertime. So we knew that we, we could do that part of it. And, and then the other is it's a, it's a great destination. So there's, you know, if you're, if you live in Steamboat or on the front range or on the East coast, or even in a different country, Steamboat, we can stand behind. Like this is a cool place to come, and not only you, but your family or your friends as well. There's there's plenty to do here. So I think for the reasons of kind of the resources that we could offer, and um, just having this vision of what the event could be, knowing even our roads, like our ranching roads, are very quiet and they're expansive. We only touch a fraction of them in our even in our long distance. 
So we knew that we could handle all of that. And so then it came down to how do we, how do we position it? How do we get the word out? How do we market it? And um, we know we can do the fulfillment. We know we can execute. So how do we go about building that vision and, and creating an event that's really expansive? Was the feel and for lack of a better word, branding of the race, something that was from that business side of your background, was it from that perception that this thing could be big? And was it sort of like, we don't want to apply this method after we don't want to apply this branding after we want it to feel like it's going that way from the start? Yeah, I would say that the branding was was all part of that initial sort of thought process. And there were a few pieces that contributed to it. Um, one of them was having a racing background. I knew and my partners knew what we liked and didn't like in a race. Like you, we can all remember the race that was too big and you felt like, oh, I don't cross the start line for 20 minutes and I'm one of 10,000 people. This is too much. Or races where you didn't feel welcome in some way. Or in my case, like I am terrible with navigation. So a race where the only thing I'm worrying about is getting lost as opposed to riding fast. So what we tried to do was create what is our perfect day on a bike. And that was a lot in driving it. And the other piece of that, and I think these terms get used often and maybe not as, as um, I would say deliberately as we lived and breathed them, but we set out our values and we spent a good bit of time, probably an entire week talking about what's really important to us. And so, and some of these things sound so obvious when you're putting on a bike race, like one of our values is fun, but not all races try to be fun. You know, like (laughs) BWR probably doesn't try to be fun. You know, like they try to be hard. There's like maybe unbound probably doesn't try to be fun. Like there's, when you look at what some of the other races do, we, we try to think of those things and live and breathe what they are. Safety was another huge piece of it. And so we invest a ton in making sure that we have medical support out there, that we're not taking people anywhere that's dangerous on the course, that, that there's, you know, we're not crossing busy highways without Colorado State Patrol. So those were some of the, the key things. And we wanted it to be challenging. And that was something we debated for so long because challenging can mean like sending people straight up our ski mountain and, and going up to 3000 feet elevation gain off the bat. And that to us was like, no, that's beyond challenging. That's suffering. Why don't we create something that is challenging regardless of if you're younger, older, new, in shape, out of shape. So that's how we came up with our different distances. We have a green course that's 37 miles. And we think that that's something that can really appeal to somebody who's newer to cycling and it's still a challenge for them. And then on the opposite side of that spectrum, we have our black course distance, which is 142 miles and a lot, 9,000 feet of elevation gain. And it's challenging, but it's also not ending at the top of a single track rutted you know, hill that's going to take people beyond their comfort. So each value that we discussed, we, we make decisions on that all the time. Credibility is another, another one. And I think having racing backgrounds, we are 
steamboat locals passionate about cycling, um, you know, understand how to put on a bike event and what people might want in a bike event. And I think that really lends the, the credibility side of this. You may see other events where people are event producers, but they're not cyclists or they produce events in different places, but they don't have a local connection. So that credibility was huge. And then the, the other piece of all of this was inclusivity. And we said that from the beginning. And it's now it's a term that is really <laughs> arguably overused, but it's so important that it's it it matters that it is. Um, and and what where that stemmed from is cycling historically is is very exclusive. You know, I you know, I would be sometimes the only female on a group ride, and it's intimidating. And even if you're pretty strong, it's scary. And <laughs> cyclists are not known for being welcoming and oh here let me lend you a hand or here why don't you do this it's 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 tough it's it's terrifying to go to to group rides or bike races and so that was a big thing that we considered is how do you make it how do you make people feel welcome regardless of if they are a world tour pro and they want a great race or if they're seven years old or if they're new to cycling and and that is a that's a year round effort. And we're in year five of thinking through how we continue to make our race feel inclusive and welcoming to everyone who comes here. Steven, you have had the chance to race steamboat, race in steamboat. How was your experience there? And what were the things that you kind of left the race reflecting on? Well, I, I didn't do the race the first year. August is always the most challenging month for my family. Cause I think the, the end of the year, kids going back to school panic hits and we try and jam a bunch in, but I finally was able to do it. Uh, not this previous year, year before. And, uh, so I had seen the first year go off and, uh, I, I think from an outsider, I'm kind of a, there's this Enneagram thing out there as personality assessment. Uh, and, and you can sort of score a number and it tells you a lot about your personality. So my personality tends to be that I like to stay just outside of the mainstream or try to be like an individualist to a fault. So when I saw it get so big, so fast, I just thought, what, what is this thing happening in steamboat? Why is it so big, so fast? How could it be any good? How could it be authentic? Sorry, Amy, if I sound terrible, but these are my internal monologues. I'm trying to know it's honest and true. It's great to hear this perspective. Yeah. Like this is how I think about everything, not just this race, but you know, it's like, I don't want to listen to that because other people do. And I want to be cool and only listen to things that people, you know, so I have that weird built-in mentality, but I, I ran into to Matt mountain biking in steamboat on a family trip there. And he said, are you coming? And I said, you know, I can never do the lottery because again, the August family thing, I never know what we're doing in August. It doesn't. And he just said, well, let me know if you want to come. Uh, and I was just kind of blown away by that level of hospitality and went back to Mrs. Fitzgerald, got the yes. Uh, and I, all of a sudden, you know, just out of nowhere, I had no plans to go. And then within a week, it's next week. Um, so I went from nothing to I'm going to SBT Black Course in a week. And I got, you know, and I think finally when you get out of that mode of like, I'm I'm not doing that to, to I, I'm doing it and it's next week, you can't help but get instantly super very excited and nervous about it. Uh, is it going to be, you know, all that it's cracked up to be? I, I, I think in my summary of SBT was 
that's probably the most beautifully perfect course I've ever written. Um, like, and again, I don't want to admit that because I don't like when something has hype, I don't want to admit that it lives up to the hype, but it was so fun. Um, so I started and I started a little slow and I just got to hang out and talk with people out on course and especially those early miles through some of those initial farmlands and the roads. It's so beautiful. You can just get swept away by all of it. And then later in the day, you know, on that black course, you, you really have to pay the piper in terms of the climbing and the more, you know, that, that backside of the course. Uh, and I thought, okay, this isn't just a beautiful bike ride in the mountains. I'm going to have to earn my way to the finish, but there really wasn't anything unpleasant. Um, the entire day start to finish. I just had a ton of fun. And I think this in a way that it overlaps unbound was that everyone's there people that you might know online that you never see in the real world. So if you just walk down the main street or you hang out at the finish, it becomes a bit of a reunion party. Um, and I think that that's something super special that the big races have is that you can count on running into people you barely know or have known a long time, but never see. So start to finish, it was just a really fun day and a really tough course. Uh, I did get lost. Um, so, <laughs> so I did. Extra miles, a popsicle stop. I saw people coming back down the hill with my number. Um, and I thought, okay, well, they went up to the popsicle stop and then came back down, and I'll just follow them. I didn't realize that those were people going by for the first time. So I went back up, whatever that big climb is on the back of the course. I went up it halfway twice uh, until I figured out I've already been. And that was a bummer, but then it just taught me like, that's kind of what's cool about this sport is that you also have to be able to, it's not just a wattage competition. It's a, you know, it's awareness, it's paying attention. It's just looking at the map. There are other things, uh, navigation. So it, the joke was on me in that case. Um, but it, yeah, it was great. I'm talking about feedback. Um, Feedback is something that race directors, that's like a big part of their job is to sift through the different areas of feedback and channels of feedback and determine what feedback they want to take into consideration and what feedback they want to discount. SBT has, for better or worse, gotten its fair share of public demonstrations of a certain type of feedback, most notably the quote unquote gravel drama associated with feed zones. Um, not to focus <laughs> yeah. specifically on that, but to look at like feedback in general. And if you'd like to speak on that, you can. Um, how do you approach it when you have all of these different people with different perspectives coming to your event and telling you how they feel and what they did? Yeah, no, it's a, it is a, <laughs> it's something that we need to take very seriously. And so we, we send, first of all, post-race surveys every year. And I know that's very different than the particular incident that you're talking about. And I'll touch on that as well. But our post-race surveys have given us a lot of guidance into what can change, what doesn't need to. So an example is we originally had our, just had a black course, blue course, and green course. And that if we got a lot of feedback that that was a big jump. Some people weren't quite ready for a hundred mile course. And could we get something closer to a hundred K? And our thought was um, initially, well, gosh, do we really want four courses? That's so many. That's a lot to manage. Does that make sense? And um, it, the feedback was fairly overwhelming in that direction. Um, and so we added what we call the red course. And now it's 
number two most popular for 2023. So it's it was a need that had to be filled um, and something that we put a lot of focus on. And similarly, uh, we got feedback that our first year, the post-race meal was just sort of, okay, it wasn't great. And we want everything to be great. We want overwhelmingly positive feedback. And so we this year brought Bijou, a chef, um, to come in and pick local ingredients, work with local restaurants, make sure there was enough food. And he designed these burrito bowls and had vegetarian versions and just um, a really great post-race meal that we had overwhelmingly positive feedback about. So those are really easy ones. And those are, you know, we get feedback and we try to execute change on those. And then you have, um, you know, situations we've had aid station, <laughs> we've had aid station controversy for the past two years. Two years ago, it was the women. Last year, it was the men. And with the the men, there's there's a lot of talk of can we have our own aid station for the pro racers? And can we? You know, there's or you know, aid stations are a little bit too crowded or. Um, you know, and we did see pictures and images of those. I wasn't on course to see some of the chaos that had happened two years ago. But what we did, I guess what we had to do was go back to values again. And one thing SBT has agreed upon from the beginning, and it, we will continue to get challenged on this, but we think it's fair that everybody has an equal start, an equal chance, an equal shot. So we don't allow any outside support. That's different from some races. So if you're, you know, whoever you are in the race, you're Keegan Swanson and you're, you know, poised to win, you cannot take a bottle from somebody unless it's a bottle that's being handed out to every single racer. And from our perspective, that's more fair because we've seen in other events that those who have the Formula One style support have an, an advantage over those that don't. And it's expensive to bring support out. If you're a sponsored racer, you're more likely to have it. And so we want to offer people the same level of support on the course, regardless of who they are. It's the same reason we've never done call-ups. It's the same reason we're standing behind our policy of a mass start event. And we can definitely talk about that more. Um, but with with aid stations, what we have done, because we hear the feedback, we don't ever want somebody to wait five in line to fill a bottle and the the entire pack takes off. We get that that's a terrible experience no matter where you are in the race. And so we did do fly through aid stations. So there's one that we know gets particularly congested. And so we basically had a, here's water bottles, here is your drink mix. If you're just on the fly, here's where you go. And then alternatively, the latter part of that aid station, you can hang up your bike, you can go put on sunscreen, you can eat a PB&J, you can peel an orange, and a lot of people want to do that. And so we want to create the same experience, the same opportunities for everybody out there, but not have a chaotic mess where the black course people who are going for the win are standing there or sort of getting in the way of or trying to mingle with people who are there to really enjoy themselves, take some pictures, put on sunscreen. So our solution to that is to have the fly through aid stations. And then every year we expand the size. So we get more tables, more water containers, any way to spread it out more so that um, 
people can get in and out quickly. And then the final piece of that is we've really spread out the races. We've done a ton of looking at when the first and the last finishers will come through each aid station um, based on the course that they're doing. And we've ch changed our timing around every year. And I think we have it right for 2023 that there won't be the same at the aid stations. All that said, if it's a choice. So, and it's a, it's a trade-off and there's a lot of racers out there who've done that. Many carry hydration packs and their decision is I'm never stopping. And many are not going to take a hydration pack. And so our thought as race directors is that is up to the, the Peloton. That's up to the racers to make those decisions. If they want to have conversations before about who's stopping or not stopping, they're more than welcome to do that, but we don't want to put in rules about it. We think that each <laughs> rules get abused, rules get um, turned into different directions. And so from our perspective, our rule is really no outside support. No arrow bars has always been a rule. But outside of that, we want the riders to, to be able to stop or not stop as they, as they see fit. And we will supply support out there for anyone who needs it, including your, your winners or the people who are just out there to finish. Did I hear you say that, uh, so you're going to stay mass start, meaning just go, everybody yes. goes? So mass start, uh, is it, That's if you guys are- Because I, 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 I didn't know that was a contentious issue with anyone or even up for review, uh, you know, and obviously unbounded that, um, and it, it's fine, whatever. But I'm, I'm curious because I don't know how many of these big four, how many big, big gravel races are there? You're kind of one of the- tastemaker gravel races uh what you do influences i think what is normal to every other maybe race promoter or rider so how do you that's interesting that you arrived at a different conclusion what one that i'm more of a fan of by the way uh for what it's worth but like how did you arrive at a different conclusion compared to the other one and how do you handle those things that might be contentious issues yeah no it's we we have um we have team discussions about all of these and we try to we understand that this sport is evolving. And I think that's some of the arguments that have been made out there in the past is like, oh, it's changed. And now it's more safe to separate people. And I, I personally, I don't see it that way. Um, I, I know from road racing, when it gets heavily categorized, that that eventually becomes the demise. You're in a race with, I've been in races with 12 women, you know, it's like, oh, here are all the pro one, two women. And in my mind, that's not a race. And it's not where gravel began. Gravel began that you can line up with, you know, Lawrence Tanam, you can line up with your mom, your sister, your daughter, your brother, your anyone, the world tour pro person, or anyone of any ability, you choose where you line up, and you can ride with your friends or not. And, and I think that's part of what I know I personally love about gravel. So we go back to values and I think of what, what is fair. And I don't think that the separate start lines necessarily solves the safety equation um, that, that others have argued it does. I've, I've played many scenarios out in my mind of how that can happen and when the men catch the women and when the amateurs catch the other, the pros and, and how that all plays out. And we want to stick to our our roots. We are fortunate in Steamboat that we have a, a pretty 
safe, wide start. And then it goes into a climb that at least is a little bit selective. And then once it hits the gravel, there's pretty shortly afterwards, another climb that again is selective. And so you, it, my intention and our team's intention is really to keep that, that mass start. So the black course starts together everyone and we have recommended start locations so if you're going to finish the black horse in 10 hours we recommend you start towards the back if you're going to finish it in seven eight hours we recommend you start towards the front but we we think that that model works well we think those are the core roots of gravel and we might be the last race standing that keeps a mass start but we we will continue to do that um unless anything fundamentally changes we will continue with a, a mass start for each of our, our courses. Do you feel pressure to sort of converge on a single format or homogenize the racing format? You know, gravel, I don't know where it is on its scale of maturity. I, I couldn't possibly know, but it, so you're five years into a race. So you've seen a lot of evolution and, and it might give you indications on where is this where is this sort of inevitably going or where does it feel like it's going? Do you feel like it, you have license to to make independent decisions or do you feel pressure from, let's say, the, the hardcore racers to make it more racy or the hardcore recreationalists to make it more recreational? How do you, how do you, you know, look at that trajectory and balance it and then decide, I guess, yeah, what, what you stand for? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting yeah. being unsanctioned. And I think that that's what... All of us who are running the, the bigger gravel events have, in a way, really appreciated. And what we were saying five years ago, I think, still stands. And that's that there's something really nice about having that freedom, independence, flexibility to make decisions on what works for us. And it might be different from you know, what works for a different race. And, and so... Uh, and I think the riders can choose based on what appeals to them. If there's something that they feel really strongly about and our race does or doesn't do it, they may choose not to do SBT. And and I would say in terms of the the pressure, I feel that it's our responsibility as race directors of, uh, you know, especially a larger race that has this platform is to think of the greater good of the sport, but I don't think that means necessarily um, conforming to any particular rules or standards. I I love that Unbound does something very different than we do. I, I think it's great that BWR has some different styles and tactics and and all of the race directors, we're all, we're friends. We talk, we discuss. Bobby Wintle is one of the greatest humans in the world, the director of Mid-South. Um, and so we we discuss some of these and and it's, it's I think gravel is, is, as long as these big events are leading it, we're still in that position to be able to make independent decisions and, and there's still a demand for all of these different events. I think, you know, it's it's been great to see what has changed for the greater good with with all of it. Like I do think the sport's incredibly inclusive across the board and that's a gravel thing now and that's incredible. So there are some things where because of some of the similarities in how we do things that there's the needle the needle is moving for cycling in the positive direction. 
And then there are other areas where we continue to, we'll hold our ground on some of what we, the standards that we've set. And we, we will continue talking to the riders across the board. We also never want to be a race that doesn't appeal to the world tour pros. So that, you know, that's something that's critical to us. So we need their, their opinions and their thoughts that that is, it's still very much a bike race. We have always had a prize purse. That was something we came out with really strong from the beginning was bike racing is expensive. It's hard to make a living doing it. Let's, let's, give riders who are at the top of the podium uh, a really good, solid payday. And we've done that since the start. And in fact, that was very controversial five years ago. So that, and it's something that we think is, is really positive for the racers has very little downside. And so we've continued to do that. And some racers, some race directors have picked that up and others haven't. But I think um, you know, these, these kind of core ideas that we set forth five years ago are they're they're still working and and although gravel is evolving around us we we think that the the main values are are still really working what are your goals going forward because it feels like there's this sensation that there's unmitigated growth in the industry and i think from conversations that I've had with the other race directors on this podcast, there's some idea that that growth is fueled from the top, that the expectations of the top events and the desire for people to do the top events is lifting the whole, the whole entity of gravel racing up. Um, So I think it's pretty important for those entities that are at the top, that are at the highest level of notoriety to sort of maybe be the basis for other races expectations do you feel that expectation and do you think that there is a responsibility for you to have a more concerted goal when it comes to your race i would say uh, well first of all i i agree with the concept that i do think we all elevate each other i don't ever consider races you know unless they <laughs> some really huge race started up in boulder like the same day as sbt or something i don't Feel that other races are competition. I think that we all can expand what gravel racing is. We're still a very new um, specialty to cycling. And so that our responsibility as a big race is to continue to grow the sport of cycling. And that only helps the, the medium size and the smaller events because people are like, oh yeah, I, I'll do that big gravel event steamboat in August, but leading up to it, I want to do these five races that are in my home state. And so I think we can help by, you know, getting more and more people to understand gravel, to, to purchase gravel bikes, to be fit for cycling. I think we all support each other and help each other in that way. Um, with the, the challenge that we're taking on and the goal for our brand in particular is we, we think that Europe is about where the U.S. was five years ago. So our thought is that the you know, gravel bikes and um, all the other products that are tailored specifically to riding gravel are just now becoming more and more popular in Europe. There's a, a general sentiment in, across almost every person I talk to in Europe, regardless of what country they're in, is that gravel is an American thing. And what we discovered specifically in Finland is they 
They have roads that look like steamboat roads. They are smooth, great gravel roads that starting with Nordic trails, they are uh, very, the, the country is 6 million people and it's enormous. So there's not many people there. There, It's beautiful. So what we want to show is that this is a sport that is not just an American thing, that there are, there's incredible gravel riding in Europe as well. And here are what we consider a great gravel event. And so that's our, our growth plan. And our intention is taking this to an international level of this style of American gravel racing that we 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 understand pretty well we get the playbook we know it appeals to a really broad group of cyclists can we take that model to europe and not only finland but a, a handful of other countries and really show what you know grvl is in in different places and that's our that's our growth plan and and I think the the small and the medium sized races in the U.S. there there are a lot of them right now. There's unquestionably you look at a calendar in any state, almost all year, but certainly in the spring, summer, fall months, and there's a gravel event. And some of those will survive, and some of them won't. And I think that from our perspective, to to really continue to grow the sport, it's expanding the interest in the U.S. to different populations that may not have considered cycling as a sport or gravel specifically, and then take that model to to Europe and um, show that, yes, Europe, this is not just an American thing. This can um, this is a great sport in Europe, too. I think it's, yeah, it's really fascinating. I think you may have mentioned it a little bit that your scale gives you some autonomy to do things your way or of the larger sort of U.S. races together, maybe you're independent. I, you know, there's, there's a weird, there's a dialogue with sort of UCI getting into gravel and, and sort of making moves and how will that affect, you know, our style of racing. But it's interesting to think if you export the SBT style of racing elsewhere, then it, it also, I think in a way gives you more leverage to keep deciding what you want gravel to look like. I don't know. Do you ever think of it that way? It just hit me as you were talking yeah. that there's kind of safety yeah. in numbers or safety in scale. <laughs> yeah, I do. I know what you mean. We have yet yeah, currently we have one enormous event. I think there is, there's something to that. I think, you know, a brand like Lifetime has multiple, um, events most are with the exception of unbound most are much smaller um and so that gives them a little bit of of leverage bwr is in a similar boat that they have multiple events they have one kind of you know big main one but they're looking to grow the others i i do think that i think that's the byproduct that that we will have the leverage i think it's more that we we have we're in this position that we can do something that <laughs> it sounds very um, i don't know opportunistic but sbt i think one of the greatest pleasures that our team has seen in all of this is we all come from cycling backgrounds and and you might have experienced this Stephen, being at sbt but it is it, it can bring a no tears to a person who's not emotional eyes to watch the diversity of people crossing the line. And I mean like paracyclists, every like people from every single imaginable imaginable background and age. And it 
this is not something that we have ever seen in cycling. And to be in a sport that is actually driving change for the better is like that there's nothing more that we that that could make us feel better about what it is that we're doing or um you know, we're we're actually taking a, our sport and our um influence and doing something that different industries across the country across the world are trying to do like how do we make things more inclusive how do we make it more diverse how do we you know how do we get people healthier there are all of these little pockets of influence that are happening and and we're doing that in a one day race but what if we could do that on a, a bigger scale you've spoken about the reach and i think i can think of the reach just in a broad sense not just in the diversity of who's finishing the race but who is learning about the race um reggie miller is a is a frequent figure at sbt events Valtteri Botas, the F1 driver, and his uh, his wife, uh, Tiffany Cromwell, the professional racer, have been involved. Um, you've had this very vocal and loud and popular group of people that seem to believe in the event or seem to promote, promote the event. What are those relationships like? Yeah, I, that um, it, it's really interesting. I'll speak first about um, Valtteri and Tiffany because... Um, that that's probably the the best case study of all of it. But uh, Tiffany was Canyon was one of our partners, um, and Tiffany came to SBT her first year in 2019. And she, I think it was the end of her racing season or getting towards the end or break in her season. And she emailed me and just said, "I need a place to stay. I'm coming in Monday. I'm flying right from Australia, and then my teammate is coming a couple days later." And so I, I emailed her back and was like, hey, why don't you stay at my house for a few days and then we'll, um, you know, you, you can move into a different lodging, but you're going to be here for a while. And, and so she stayed here and I got to know Tiffany pretty well. And that, that was sort of the start of something really unique. Tiffany would had, she raced the blue course. She didn't race the black course. She just had a, a good time. She was here before that year was the um, Colorado Classic. So the women's. Um, UCI road race ha was happening the following week. So that was another reason that Canyon said, sent her out here. And um, we did that race to get, I also raced that race and um, really got to know her. So she, when she went home, she tells her boyfriend, Valtteri, like, hey, you've got to do this gravel event. You'll love it. And so Valtteri came out to SBT the following year. And I think from his perspective, he was he was happy to be somewhere where he wasn't recognized all the time. You know, like if he when he goes to Formula One race, he has ten thousand people trying to get his autograph and his picture, and and that wasn't the case at SBT. There were definitely people who recognized him, but he was able to remain a little bit anonymous. He did the race. He got third in the red course, so he was on the podium, and he also just had a great time. Um, just being here and being part of the event. And so we, you know, I was in touch with Tiffany and then thought it was um, after 2021, I saw an article in the Velo News that um, I think Betsy had interviewed Valtteri and he said, maybe someday I'll put on a gravel event in my hometown. And so I reached out to him and said, hey, Valtteri, would you ever want to go into business together? I'd be, you know, I'd love to grow gravel into Europe and maybe we could partner on this. 
And Valtteri wrote right back. He said, yeah, I'd love to. This sounds great. Let's get on a call. And the the week later, I was on a Zoom with Valtteri. And then two weeks later, we were planning out what is now Finland Gravel. And Tiffany, Valtteri, and I are three partners in that event. So that is, um, you know, that's an example of <laughs> the, probably the most extreme example of it became a partnership with them having come to the event. But I think in the, the case of people like Reggie, who has been here, Dahani Jones, a football, a former NFL player, Jason Seahorn, former NFL player, Mike Posner, a musician. We've had a lot of those kind of celebrity people. And every one of those has stemmed from a relationship with someone on our team. So we're, um, you know, friends with them for, and we ask them to come out to our event and just personally invite them. It's never been a business transaction. And I think that's how SBT, we try to interact with all of our riders and racers is that we, we ultimately are personable, kind, treat everybody well and form relationships with people, whether they're cyclists or former pro athletes or your kind of everyday rider. And we are, we have these relationships. Ryan Steers, who heads up all of our marketing, he rides out in the LA area with Reggie all the time. It's like, Hey, would you ever come to our race? And Reggie's like, yeah, sounds cool. I'll come out. And then the next thing you know, Reggie is like this ambassador for SBT gravel and has a great time when he's here. But a lot of this stems from genuine relationships. And I think that is something that all of us, we're, you know, we're out there, we're at all of the events, we're on our bikes all the time, and we're able to form these relationships with different people and invite them here and make sure they have a, an incredible time when they're in Steamboat. I was just say, quick, when is the Finland race? Uh, it's on June 10th. I, I don't know off the top of my head. Yeah, it's June okay. 10th. And so it, it, it should look and feel a lot like SBT gravel with some pretty cool finished touches on it. So yeah, that's that's June 10th this year. And then um, Valtteri, Tiffany and I and the SBT team are looking at sort of the next country that um, will host a gravel event, event in for 2024. So on that note, um, that date is right after Unbound. That date is. is around when BWR had their North Carolina race. It's around Oregon Trail Gravel Grinder, a week-long stage race that's more on the smaller grassroots side. Obviously, there's only so many events in the year, and the United States is a big country, and the world is an even bigger place. But how has it been navigating the sort of soft politics of calendars and trying to find a way to satisfy both what your goals are and, and when you have a partner like Valtteri, his race schedule, um, but also when you have big players like BWR and Lifetime and also small, longstanding independent races like Gravel Worlds in the in the the late August area window. Um, how is it navigating that sort of political discussion? Yeah. Calendar navigation is really challenging. Um, and yeah, so SBT, we, we were on the back of our very first year, we were a week after Leadville and that worked out great. And I think that's, that 
when Leadville moved their date, we moved ours. There was some sort of change, but essentially we became the same weekend. And that was an example of really two different uh, races coming together with an incredible solution, not only solving a problem, but making a really cool experience. And that was the sort of the beginning or the genesis of what became Leadboat was a calendar problem. <laughs> and uh, Leadboat became this few year event that was um, really something that that became a thing that riders look forward to doing that we would have a couple hundred riders do every year. So that's sort of calendar problem gone well. Um, this year, SBT moved our date out a week, and the the main driver behind that was local demand. Um, SBT is incredibly busy all summer long, and the windows that we had the race, the windows that we were given that we could have the race extended. And basically, the, our lodging partners were struggling because it's still busy. School hadn't started. So there were just a ton of reasons why Steamboat was still crowded. And we got that request, essentially, and nudge from our city to push Steamboat back one week. And that did have downstream effects on other events, specifically Gravel Worlds and The Last Best Ride. And that's challenging. We know that that you get permits well in advance and you plan everything around a date. And so you know, we've talked to both of them and I think that they ended up moving their dates around and, and it's really, it's tough on all events and we're, the calendar is very saturated. So we do our best to, to be, you know, give people enough notice on what our plans are. And it's, it's certainly a challenge with Finland. That challenge was, as you mentioned, exacerbated because we had to wait for the Formula One schedule to come out and that didn't come out until the fall. And we knew we wanted June and it landed on two possible dates for June. And then it turned out June 10th was really the only one that worked for the city of Lati in Finland where we're hosting it. And so a week after Unbound is, uh, it's challenging, but we actually have several of the, the top world tour um, guys and gals are flying straight from Kansas City to Helsinki. So their their plan is to get on a plane on Monday. They'll be in Helsinki on Tuesday morning, and um, they'll race Finland Gravel on Saturday. So we, we we even joked about trying to charter a plane between Kansas City and Helsinki. We haven't quite gotten to that level yet, but that would be the ideal. Um, and and it's we looked at sort of that. The other, there are smaller gravel events in Europe right now, and we're not on the dates of any of those. And it was trying to kind of navigate when when can this work? And it's it's tough. BWR has a lot of events. Um, our our thought and our hope with Finland and the other European races that we launch is that the U.S. will probably ultimately make up maybe thirty percent of the audience. And um, just based on you know, logistics and price and everything to get over there. And that's what we're seeing. We have a little bit more than that um, heading to Finland this year. But ultimately, we hope that we're growing gravel in Europe and that it's 70% European and 30% US, um, maybe not 70, maybe 65. And then we have the other 5% from the rest of the world. So there's, there are certainly challenges. And I think, you know, from our perspective, we do everything we can to, to be in touch with the other race directors. And we do work, we work really well with um, just about all the other um, large events to, 
to kind of plan those things out and let them know when we make changes. Well, that's about it for us and our questions. Thank you so much for taking the time, Amy, to talk about your race, to talk about Gravel's growth and direction. We really appreciate it. And hopefully we'll see you down the road sometime. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And we're back in the lab. Steven, we've been on a journey these last couple of weeks. Um, personally, I've been on a journey for like months now with this project. Um, and it's been something that has been challenging, but has been really rewarding because there's a lot more method to the madness than I thought. And I think you talk to someone like Michael and you understand a little bit about what that true intention is and there's that that spirit behind all of it even at the these these really high levels of event like i know we talk about spirit of gravel but from your angle as someone who's focused a lot on ethos in terms of branding and thinking about your company in ways beyond what the products are as like a tangible thing but what they might mean how do you feel the spirit of gravel balances that marketing interest and that organic interest? Oh, there's always going to be a lot of tension there um, because these events become very powerful in sort of the reach that they have and the economic weight that they have, the money they bring in, the marketing they generate, the bikes they sell, the platform that they create for their riders. So that's always going to be commingled with the actual event and the riding of the bike that maybe a participant does. So it's impossible to separate those two things. Um, and I, for me, that's always an uncomfortable tension because are you, are you encouraging people to do something transformative on their bike or are you manipulating people through sort of hype to just consume more, uh, and do, you know, attain more things through consumption uh, I think on the dark side, events can do that, but I'm going to stay optimistic about events, even the biggest events, because it has always, always been true to me that as soon as you leave the starting line and you're actually riding your own bike and all of the, you know, the really bad sort of blues traveler music from the starting line fades and the crowds and the logos and the, the vendor booths and all of that stuff, you start riding your bike and you're out there you have to do that work. You're sort of on your own. And that part of it almost can't be ruined. Uh, and all of these all of these promoters are putting together courses and events at places that are very iconic and beautiful to ride. So as much as you may have to sort of pay the piper to get going and be riding, um, you're still going to find something sublime once that begins. So I feel I'm comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. tension yeah so speaking of tension and races scaling um the one elephant in the room is unbound in lifetime and michael brought it up kind of explicitly in our conversation i guess maybe i brought it up but it was part of our conversation explicitly and you could tell that he had certain opinions about the ways that were right and wrong and how he felt his race 
sided on one of those sides. You're someone who's been to Unbound more than you've been to BWR. It's something that is kind of a staple of your year. It's something that you've really spent a lot of time thinking about and talking about. Um, as we sort of approach the end and as our last part is going to focus on Unbound, how do you feel that that race fits into the equation that we've been talking about before? Is it something that is other or is it something that is more similar? I think when you're, look, Unbound to me is number one. And unless something spectacular goes wrong, they're always going to be that. You almost, they could never be dethroned if they just keep being unbound in a positive way. Um, when you're number one, you always have a target on you. So you're always going to attract the most critics, the most attention, the most media. I mean, they are the Super Bowl. Um, so, you know, people, people love to love them and they love to hate them. Uh, and it's interesting to hear that, you know, from riders and, and non-racers, non-event people, and also even other race promoters, it's easy to point at them and say, well, they're not doing this right, or, or they're doing that wrong, or that's not authentic, or that's too, or, you know, lifetime, they're too mega. Um, but on a heavy is the head that wears the crown. Um, it's got to be hard to manage a race with that legendary status and, and not ruin it. And I think, you know, in my opinion, again, there's always a commingling, but I think that they are doing a very good job of trying to do that. Um, so I'm, I'm positive about that event. I do keep going back probably because maybe more than any other event, that one does, it's 200 miles, right? And how many of those are there? When you're alone in the Kansas Prairie or talk, whatever that is, the, the Flint Hills for that much time, it's hard to not experience something profound. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm interested, you know, and I hope, you know, as of right now, we don't have anything with them yet, but I hope we have them to finish this off to hear from them about what their vision is and how they manage that. Yeah. I mean, it's the biggest, but it's the first. And that's, yeah. or I guess Trans-Iowa might be the first if you're really trying to get specific, but it's the first one that has sort of surpassed or been transcendent in a way that others haven't. And you hear Rebecca Rush talking about it. You hear about Jason at Gravel Worlds talking about it. And it's, it is something that's different. And I think I don't want it to seem like we saved the quote unquote best for last, but I think it was always my intention to try to do as much reporting before we got to this point. So I could understand fully what the questions were to ask them. So again, we have at this point, hopefully yeah. if all things go well, two weeks before that episode's released, we have none, no recording on it and don't exactly know what that conversation is going to be like. And that I think is something that's beautiful because we've been going through this process for a couple months now and all of the other conversations we recorded before we released any of the race director roundup episodes, but this one feels different and is, is in its own category. So I'm excited to see what we come up with, but it does feel like through all the conversations I've had, it, it does kind of deserve this treatment. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're they're They own that event. Let's say lifetime owns that event, but the race directors, uh, are stewards of that event and everything that has come before them that makes it w what it is. And I, I can relate to that on a tiny way with rodeo because people will, they'll look and say, well, you, or, you know, even employees, like you own this company 
So what are you trying to do? Are you trying to get rich? Are you trying to grow? Are you trying to take over the bike industry? Are you trying in, in, I try to explain to I've explained to a number of people that at this point I just feel like a steward of this. Some people, you know, in the community think it's really special. It is special in the sense that we have a family of people that work here. It's uh, it's got it's viewed as something bigger than just something that you own. And I think maybe, you know, I I come to work and I run it, but I mostly think about how can I keep it what it is, the good things about what it is. How can I not ruin it? Um, and that's a stewardship thing that, and I, I would bet that they have maybe two masters with unbound where they need to make a profitable event, you know, because it's owned by a corporation, but the people running it, I'm going to bet they care deeply about stewarding it because of, again, the amazing history and the Genesis story of how it came together. And I would love to hear how that's balanced. Um, any race director is stewarding bike culture. Uh, you know, dirt bike, drop bar bike, dirt road, gravel, you know, monster cross. They're stewarding all of this culture and these events um, and they own it. So it's, what do you do with that responsibility? That's the question. And I guess that will be a good place to start. Yeah. Next episode on the race director roundup. Well, Steven, thanks for taking the time. Thank you again to Michael Merckx and Amy Charity for taking the time with this podcast we have been working hard at the lab. There will be some non-race content coming up on the podcast. We've been trying to see this through and create a cohesive mini-series as a part of the podcast, but we will be back to the rambles soon enough. Yep. Um, rambly. Rambly. We'll be in person, too, which will probably create a different atmosphere. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, we upgraded some hardware to we try got... and make them work better and be easier to do. So fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. But thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you next time. Rodeo Labs podcast is filmed in front of a live studio audience.